Hello and welcome to Postgres FM, a weekly show about all things PostgreSQL. I am Michael, founder of PG Mustard. This is my co-host Nikolai, founder of Postgres AI. Hey Nikolai, what are we going to be talking about today? Your time to announce. Well, yeah, so anybody following you on Twitter probably saw your tweet this week that got a couple of hundred retweets, a lot of likes, and it was a summary of tips for beginners, you said, right? So 10 tips for people that are new to Postgres. So we thought we'd discuss that. New means probably people use Postgres for a few years already, but like, you know, like you can be developer, you can use some backend developer or even frontend developer sometimes. You can use some ORM, Rails, Django or something, maybe touch some SQL sometimes, but consider Postgres as some kind of black box, relational black box, you know. But at some point, of course, it's, it's worth understanding at least something, like to scratch surface and understand what's happening under the hood, just to avoid bad surprises, like why my delete is so slow, or why it's behaving like that. Like, I deleted a lot of data, but disk space consumption is still the same, right? Or why bloat accumulates so quickly, and so on. Yeah, so I think you're right. I think some of these will be useful to people, even people that have been using Postgres for years. But I also think some of them will be really useful to people that have only picked it up recently or whose organization are migrating to Postgres from another database. So I think there's a whole range of people that are new to Postgres or even, I mean, even I enjoyed reading these and, you know, thought, oh, yeah, I do need to look into that. I haven't, I've never installed that extension or something. So, yeah, even for me, there were a few things. Right, but as you very correctly noticed, all of these things we already discussed. So yeah. <laughs> oh, each, each, every uh, one of all those ten tips have a link can have a link to our previous episode for a deeper dive. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I think some of them aren't the exact same topic, so I'm interested to ask you a couple of questions on a few of them. But yeah, I'll include links to episodes for maybe people that are newer to our podcast and haven't listened to every single episode we've done. Right, and from there you can go to very beautiful blog posts, articles, talks, and other books, and so mm -hmm. on and so on. <laughs> you can use this episode as an entry point, other episodes as like deeper entry points to specific topics, and from there you can learn a lot. So it's kind of like a tree, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, so, I mean, we don't have that long to discuss 10 things. Should we get started? Yeah, let's do. So the first one on our list is all about tuples. Do you want to give the summary of this? And Yeah, so I, I don't know why everyone continues mixing. I not, not everyone. Many people continue mixing rows and tuples. Tuples are physical version of rows. It's MVCC model, a multi-version concurrency control model Postgres uses. And you can fill them if you look into secret columns. Well, not secret, but invisible columns. Uh, CTID, Xmin, Xmax. And we discussed it, right? So CTID is physical location of this tuple. Again, tuple is a physical version of row. So if you change it, physical location usually also changes. Well, in most cases it changes. And CTID consists of two parts. It's a page number and internal address inside page, so like I've said. And my usual trick, if you need to extract only for page number, for example, you convert it to point data type and then address it like X or, or Y component. So X is 
page y is offset and then you can extract it and convert it back to number and, and that's it so it's easy because uh, this like ctid data type i think it lacks some operators or something or functions by the way maybe it's a small addition that could be first a contribution to postgres if you want to try to writing some c code it's quite simple so this ctid is interesting and it's one of my favorite tricks to surprise people like saying update table set id equals id where id equals one and you suddenly see that ctid this hidden column changes its value even if logically you didn't do anything but postgres copies whole tuple each time you change it right yeah. in in the best case it can happen inside the same page and so you don't receive index updates you don't need to update all indexes in the worst case it goes to different page and all indexes should be updated unfortunately yeah. receiving new entries and and xmin xmax it's like date of birth date of death right how to say in terms of transaction id we discussed it right we discussed it we have episode about uh, mvcc or or bloat or so and so on but it's, it's all related i think the episode we discussed this most in was our other more beginner focused episode which was how to become a dba so i'll link up that one for sure i thought it was a great tip i had nothing to add i think it's quite simple as well and you've gone into good detail Right, but I'm quite sure that this should be clear not only to DBAs. This knowledge should be clear for everyone who works with Postgres because even if these columns are hidden, you inevitably will deal with bloat, with slowdown, with some slow delete, some slow update, massive update, for example, and so on. And uh, understanding this starts with understanding what tuple is. Yeah, I completely agree. It's going to be coming up again in a couple of the later tips as well. Because DBS usually don't write most of the code. Most of the code is written by developers. And if developers don't understand that update set ID equals ID leads to physical action, quite expensive one, they will continue writing it, right? If they understand it, they will avoid it because they understand what's happening under the hood. I agree. Number two. Number two. Number two's one's close to my heart as well, isn't it? Always use buffers when checking explain analyze. Yeah, we, we mentioned it so many times. If you if like you, it's not your first episode, you definitely know it and nothing to add. But if it's first episode, just remember buffers should always be inside parentheses with analyze when you write explain analyze. So analyze should be in parentheses, comma, buffers. Explain don't use an explain analyze, use explain analyze buffers always. No exclusions. I was going to add to it. I think, especially if you're brand new to using Explain and you might have to ask a colleague or somebody online for help, I would also recommend what, when you're getting the Explain plan to use verbose and settings as well. They're two more parameters. Verbose because it gives the people reading it more information about your schema uh, as well as output columns and things like that. So more information for people that aren't as familiar with the query that you're working with. And settings, because if you've changed anything locally, that will show up. Or if you've configured the database differently to how production's configured or something like that, those things will show up and they'll help people avoid wasting time when helping you. They might spot an obvious issue in there. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So deviations from of settings. But I also like, okay, verbose will make it verbose. If you write JSON, 
Former JSON, it will be even more verbose and so on, but it's more difficult to consume by humans. But I also think sometimes it, it makes sense to turn off costs, for example, if you just care about execution in some cases and you want narrower output to share with your colleagues. In some cases, it makes sense to remove costs. But of course, costs are very important to, for, to understand what Planner is doing. As a beginner, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be doing that just in case somebody helping you can. Right, but if you verbose, it's so wide and long and so on. Like I, I just see sometimes people share plans with cost off just because they want they, the place where they share. If they don't do it, it's it's hard to to read the plan if it's text textual. I kind of disagree. Buffers, for example, in JSON format, buffers add twelve keys per node. So I mean, that's a lot more than verbose is adding. Well, okay, okay, okay. I just noticed quite experienced guys do it. Costs off. I also t started to use it sometimes, especially if you already collected a plan without execution using just explain. There is no reason to repeat the same information in subsequent uh, plans, right? If it's, you know the same plan, but sometimes, of course, you add index plan changes. So you, if you don't use costs, uh, then you it's hard to compare and understand why planner chose this what planner thinks about costs of particular nodes inside the plan. Okay, okay, I agree with you, but sometimes still like, okay. Let's move on. Move on. So always use buffers, no matter what else we've just said, use buffers. Number yeah. three, you've said throw away PG admin. I start said, with. Yeah, yeah, I said that many years people. ago, and I mm -hmm, keep mm -hmm. uh, saying the same. So why? Tell us why. <laughs> many, many reasons, and uh, where to start? <laughs> Okay, uh, this is my personal opinion. Uh, sa same opinion I have, for example, about Windows, but I understand that some people like Windows, so it's okay. Uh, but in this case, I see that it's not only my opinion. Uh, every person I talk to says the same. But PGAdmin, it, PGAdmin uh, takes very important stage. It pretends it's official Postgres UI graphical UI, right? But it's a separate project. It's developed by, by, by not the same people. It has different uh, release cycle and so on. And I think it's advertised uh, unfairly and it's, it forms uh, wrong expectations because the quality of this product is not good. That's it. It has a lot of issues, uh, UX issues, first of all. I think you're right. I think there are better free and even open source graphical user interfaces available i think you're right also that because it comes with a couple of the officially linked to distributions so if you download postgres for mac os or for windows pg admin comes bundled which does lend itself to believing it's like uh, default official mm -hmm. but equally i was looking at the stack overflow survey results recently and I was seeing that even though Postgres has gone ahead of MySQL in terms of popularity and in terms of even usage for professional developers, when people are learning to code, it's still a long way behind MySQL. And I was actually thinking that one of the reasons is, like, it, I think it is useful for beginners to have a graphical interface in a lot of cases. So I can see the temptation to bundle one. But yeah, I think this is good advice and there are good alternatives, which is really helpful. Yeah, there are a lot of alternatives and like just check uh, opinions don't trust me check reviews opinions from others and you will see so many people don't like pgadmin uh, especially then they already saw something better there are there are some better tools 
if you want UI. But main advice for me is uh, learn console PSQL and Tmax yeah. and VI. And well, maybe even without VI, some people just use Nano and that's it. It's not for them. PSQL is something worth learning even if you spend most of your time in UI you will still benefit from understanding some PSQL tricks because CLI it's better for programmers because you can code something in it you can make your colleagues repeat the very same steps you did right because it will be a script well, more more than that, it's also Postgres quality. It's also yes. shipped with Postgres, yes. written by yes. the same people. A lot of people, same, same people, mm-hmm. many same, like not the same people, but a lot of people who work on Postgres mm-hmm. engine itself, they work also sometimes with on PSQL, and it has so many features. It uh, has the same release cycle, the same quality, same, same, same. It's, it's PSQL is definitely Postgres uh, native tool. Yeah. PGAdmin is not native tool. It pretends to be native, but it's not. One counter I have heard to this from a few people that have also said they prefer other interfaces is that they still use pgadmin for its plpgsql debugger. So I don't know of another tool that has one built in. Uh, I think you can use uh, Tmux and VI and still have debugger. It's it's hardcore approach. I personally don't use debugger, honestly. Mm -hmm. I just use print lining everywhere. Somehow I I use debugger in many, many uh, languages and uh, environments quite often trying to pretend it works. But somehow always, like print lining is always with you, always. And if you know how to do it right, and in PGSQL uh, there are approaches how to do it right. For example, you can raise debug, for example, right? And or, or raise log, raise info, raise notice, raise warning, mm-hmm. raise exception, although it's an error, but it's called, called exception. You can catch them. In this case, you will deal with subtransactions. Uh, also, uh, interesting thing, I have an article about subtransactions uh, to warn about their issues under heavy loads. But print lining is always with you. It's always working. Maybe less convenient. Maybe a little bit more time-consuming in some cases, but uh, it's good. So debugger, I, I, I respect a debugger, obviously. Like Debugger is a great thing. It's like professional level, right? But still, I personally don't use it, so I cannot recommend. But to be fair, PGAdmin also has a schema div component. For example, yeah. I looked into it. It's code. It's quite interesting code, and you shouldn't expect magic there. I mean, it's schema div. It will produce some DDL to convert one schema to another without context. So it might you might have issues if, for example, you rename column versus you drop and add columns. All data can be lost. So you should be careful with these steps. And also, of course, it will be DDL, which is written in non-zero downtime fashion. And I don't see anyone who implemented zero downtime diff in, in terms of DDL. It's it's hard topic. But uh, others also, some other UIs also have component for diff. Yeah. Also, pgadmin has good component to to work with GIS systems and uh, present some data on map. I just saw people using this quite well. I personally don't do it, but yes, it has some it has some good features. I think dbver also has it already, right? That's actually when you when you compare when you look at comparison discussions online between the two or between various GUIs the the one that comes up most often for praise when it comes to displaying graphical information is dbeaver. It's what a lot of people love about it. So, but bottom line, I personally don't like pjadmin at all. I think it's uh, it's should be replaced everywhere. But I'm not alone. 
And if you don't uh, trust my opinion here, just check other reviews. That's it. Yeah. Let's move on. Next is oh settings, uh, logging settings, right? So logging is super important, and usually when you need it, uh, and you s find yourself working with default logging, and uh, it, something happened, and you don't see it, don't don't see data. So you should enable logging of checkpoints of auto logging. I recommend uh, to log everything. Of course, if you have a lot of tiny tables and auto logging constantly touching it, writing like okay, I. I just processed like one megabyte table. It's maybe spamming your logs, but it's still worth understanding some details usually and, and, and so on. I usually recommend enable logging for all autovacuum occurrences. Yep. And temp files, I also prefer logging all temp files. Log log weights, which is based mm -hmm. on deadlock timeout, which is by default one second. Some people tend to increase it. It's for deadlock detection, but it also in, indirectly defines how events of being blocked by other session will be logged, right? Blocked, logged. So this is by default disabled. So if some locking issues are happening and logs, you don't see them, unfortunately. And it's, that's bad. I prefer seeing everything here. So just enable it. And, and every time some session waits more than one second, by default, that lock timeout, you will see it, uh, details about this case and it will help you improve your application code and so on. And also log duration statement. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes it's okay to set to zero, but very rarely because yeah, yeah, yeah. to log all queries with duration. I'm shaking my head. Well, there is opinion we should have it. For example, if you have Nginx, for example, right? It's normal to log all requests to HTTP server. I mean, Nginx, for example, right? HTTP server. We yeah, log all on. requests. Why with database we can do, we cannot do log all requests? Because um, usually, <laughs> especially if you put, uh, if you use a syslog journal, uh, journal D, and also you put your logs on very, like mag some magnetic device, well, it will be sequentially, uh, sequential writes. It's not that bad usually, but still if you, you can do the math. How many IOPS uh, and mega, megabytes per second uh, you will need to, to have, right? But yeah, so observer effect is no joke. I put very important production systems a few times myself down, put them down m multiple times. And it was a super expensive experiment. And the lessons learned were very hard. So yeah, I wouldn't do it on serious production. I mean, putting zero, but trying to go down, definitely, yes. Well, and setting it to something, I think, is the key here. Not minus one, you mean? Yeah, yeah, something positive. But there's a value that anybody can afford here, right? Like, there's... there's Five seconds, one second. It'd be, yeah, right. So, like, if you can't afford to do that, you've got bigger problems. Right, because if you if everything is slow, it won't be so, so many queries. To, to, you can't have that many, yeah, exactly. Right, but... I think it's super fast, but still, you need to learn your observer effect. Understand these capabilities where you have logs and maybe test it and understand, okay, we are okay to log maybe 10 log entries per second, for example, mm -hmm. normally, and maybe like 100 at, during peak times. It's okay for us, for example. Or maybe we should adjust settings and raise ba some bars like uh, log duration statement or log auto vacuum uh, mean duration. We can mm -hmm. also raise it a little bit and so on. Yeah. Wonderful. Shall we move on? Yeah. 
So it's quite related, still looking at performance, but also here, a bit more logging. We've got install pgstat statements, which is a must, you've said, and if you can, a few more extensions, pgstat kcache, pgweight sampling, auto-explain, even you mentioned pgsentinel here as well, but with a few extra decisions on settings for those last few. Right, right. So, yeah, pages assessment should be everywhere, installed everywhere. Overhead is very low. We had an episode about it, of course. Mm -hmm. And other extensions are, these pieces of advice are mostly for uh, people who manage Postgres themselves. Because yeah. cloud providers usually provide something extra to pages statements. For example, RDS provides uh, performance insights, so mm -hmm. you don't need pgweight sampling. But they don't provide anything similar to pgstatkcache, which gives you physical angle for query analysis, unfortunately. So you cannot answer who is responsible for high CPU consumption, which query is responsible for high CPU consumption. You can only indirectly answer this. With pgstatkcache, you can directly answer this. So, yeah, so these extensions are good, good things. But auto-explain is everywhere, right? Auto-explain is everywhere. It is now, yeah. We had an episode on that as well where I claimed that it wasn't on Heroku, but then the next day it was available. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Heroku, <laughs> yeah, I remember this. And yeah. you, uh, uh, worth reminding, you have an article saying that sometimes it's okay to enable timing option for auto-explain, and of course we want buffers there. Also, both have some yeah. overhead, and your post was about... Unlike uh, common opinion, sometimes uh, this overhead is not huge and you can enable them both probably. Not always. And also never with a threshold of zero milliseconds. Oh, um, right, right, right. So again, it's only for slower queries. Yeah. But slow down. Zero is fine if you use sampling. And oh, it, maybe. It was, yeah. it was you who told me that sampling in auto-explain exists for already many years, unlike... Yeah slow query logging component, which is log, log mean duration statement mm -hmm. uh, based. Uh, now we have, in modern Postgres version, we have sampling capabilities for both. And these things are like, they compete. If you choose auto-explain, yeah. you don't need log mean duration statement because, well, we discussed this. Like, let's yeah. keep uh, details uh, for Agreed. those who are interested and we have a link to episode where we dive deeper into this topic. Perfect. Let's move on. So my opinion is that all development should happen on uh, larger data sets. Like it's not worth wasting time uh, developing on small databases, on empty databases. Just take bigger size, realistic size that uh, clone and just develop using it. Of course, you should remove PII, personal identifiable information, like phones, SSNs, emails, and so on. Because if you, if you use it for development, some auditors won't be happy if you use production clone for development. But not always. Sometimes people are okay to clone. In many projects, it's fine. Because mm -hmm. you might work with just public data, for example. But my idea is, like, I, I see people tend to develop with small or like fake, some mocked databases. Then they are surprised why some queries work slow or don't work at all. Yeah, exactly. I think people are surprised not only that more rows can be slower, but also that it can affect planner decisions quite so drastically. Even whether, you know, I think people understand that join algorithms depend on data sizes, but they don't always realize that scan operations can depend on it as well and all sorts of planner choices. And it's even not just 
Query performance, right, is also spotting locking issues. If you have a tiny table, you might not spot something that's taken an exclusive lock uh, that's going to cause you downtime if you apply that in production. So I think it can help you with other kind of spot other issues as well by doing this. I think it's a good tip. Right, but even even not related to performance, if you develop using some like if you present your feature to your product manager or project manager or some QA specialist or some other people, not necessarily engineers, and it has some random data, you don't have good page navigation, search doesn't work, and because you just generated a few rows, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's also not working well. Compared to the case when you have production clone with PII removed or yeah. you generated really more realistic data sets and you can share a clone quickly using database lab for example database branching like cheap and fast you can share it and uh, they can dependently test it it's very good it, it, it unblocks many not clear in the beginning processes uh, inside development process but I also wanted to uh, say that the idea of using large databases sometimes conflicts with the idea I want to take my laptop and go to some vacation or work on plane where internet is slow or so. So people, of course, want to have database on their laptops, on their working machines sometimes to avoid the need to use internet connection. And I understand that, of course. And in this case, if you want uh, one terabyte, well, probably today we we'll ha- already have disks with like one terabyte. Some, sometimes you need subsetting, of course. So you yeah, need yeah. to minimize. But still, you can work with more realistic data. And if you can clone, if you can have uh, one terabyte on disk, but clone it 10 times without extra costs and in terms of money and time, this is how things should work. And worth noticing, we have copy on write everywhere already. We have it containers, it's copy and write on file level, layer FS overlay two, like uh, this, when you create con- container based on some image, it doesn't copy everything mm-hmm. because it's copy and write. And we also have Git. Git is also copy and write on file level. You create branch, it doesn't copy whole repository, right? Yeah. It, it just virtually creates like a copy, but you share the same files among all branches, which are, are the same until you change some file, right? Same here. You need to develop uh, applying copy and write to databases, and this is this is exactly what we implemented, trying to help people. I mean, we nice. post mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You've spent a lot of time thinking about this. We did a whole episode on it. I think the database branching episode is the best one to share here, so I'll do that. Good. Yeah, agreed. Nice. So we've got a few more, but luckily some of these are shorter. Make sure data checksums are enabled. So this is about avoiding corruption, and we've got a whole episode on that. Right. Yeah. Anything yeah. Anything additionally to add there? Well, unfortunately, the places created a few years ago probably don't have them enabled. And I think still Postgres itself has default off because it it should be done during init DB time when you create a cluster. Of course, they have overhead. Everything Mm -hmm. has overhead, but this overhead is worth having because without them, risks are high and it's hard to, like, you need to implement a lot of additional procedures to control uh, your corruption risks. And somebody, by the way, asked about if you have checksums on lower level, for example, if you have ZFS, mm-hmm. like database lab, because it uses mm-hmm. ZFS as well. In this case, probably you don't need data checksums. I think like we have data checksums in Postgres level are at higher level. They protect not only from hardware issues, for example, we, when data is corrupted and data checksum says, okay, I, I expected to read something, but I see this page has something else. So we have corruption. 
I think it also protects from from particular, maybe not like very likely, but some bugs in Postgres itself or in file system itself, because checksumming at higher level feels safer to me. You created some content in shared buffers, you have checksum, and then everywhere, like Postgres itself, file system, personal system, and then hardware, all of them are under control. If you do it uh, at lower level, you have some like layers of your system which bypass that checksumming, right? Maybe like, of course, it's already good if you have checksums in file system, mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. good, but it feels not as complete as Postgres would do it. Corruption can so, happen in many, many, many places. Yeah. If we remember this is for beginners, I guess a couple of other things to mention that we, I think we cover both in the episode, I can't remember. One is that you could do a smoke test to see if you've definitely got some corruption, for example, in some of your indexes using AmCheck. And you can also... Use AmCheck for heap. If you just open documentation, it was a surprise for me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, AmCheck is officially for heap as well because it oh, has... Oh, really? Yes. Cool. It, it has PGM check, which has parallelization option, dash J. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. can use like multiple jobs and move faster, of course, using more cores and put more pressure on your disk, IO system. So you can say heap all indexed, some flag, heap all indexed as I remember it. And in this case, if all your tables have unique keys or primary keys, which cover whole table, primary mm-hmm. key covers whole table, heap will be checked as well. Oh, great. In this case, you check. You need, don't need pgdump to def null anymore. Yeah. Because it turned out, I, I started recently, like how to run pgdump to def null in parallel. And it turned out not to be so trivial. And then uh, someone, basically, well, Andrei Borodin uh, told me that pgdump check can be used for checking everything, both indexes and heap. And that's great. Nice. The other thing I wanted to mention is that some backup tools have the option to check for corruption at backup time, which is quite nice. If you can't, if you've already... Yeah. But uh, is it checking corruption in database or in backups? Corruption can happen in many places. This is the main rule of corruption. It can happen everywhere. I think it checks it at the database level, but I could be wrong. It should be used something existing like uh, I'm checking. Worth looking into it. I don't know it. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should we move on? Yeah. Number eight is uh, two not a vacuum to run frequently and to make it move faster. Yes. Default are bad. Default settings are not good enough for you usually. In most modern cases, although recently it was adjusted, like a few years ago, uh, default settings were adjusted. Cost limit, cost delay. Cost delay went down to 2 milliseconds from 20 to 2. So 10 times more quota in terms of CPU and especially IO. And now a single worker can move faster and, and so many things inside this uh, vacuum tuning. Basically, you need to move it faster So because by default it's also throttled. So throttling and also frequency of occurrences. Uh, by default, it happens like with 10%, 20% of tuples affected. It's too infrequent. It's yeah. too conservative. For OLTP, you should use like 1%, half a percent. So make it 10 times, to run it 10 times more frequently or even 20 times more frequently and so on. 
Yep, completely agree. We've got a whole episode on vacuum. I think that's worth people checking out if they aren't aware of this. But yeah, the best analogy I ever heard was vacuum's a bit like exercise. If it hurts, you're not doing it often enough. Right. And I usually say if you, for example, data delete at all, insert roll and with rollback something, you produce some dead tuples, well, you put some pressure. And if like you have 96 cores, 128 cores, and all your like cores can do that, right? They can do writes and produce dead tuples. Why do you have only three workers? Three workers is not enough to clean up after all those guys, right? You yeah. should have, you should allocate like at least 10% of your course, like 10 workers or maybe 20 workers to clean up faster because a lot of work done, a lot of cleanup work should be done. Yeah. And the bigger your tables get, the worse the default settings get for them in terms of those scale right. factors. So yeah. And you partitioned, but didn't, uh, didn't change auto vacuum workers number. It's still True. three, but you partitioned, well, <laughs> It's not good as well. You cannot benefit from having a lot of cores, maybe. So, yeah, yeah it's an interesting topic. We definitely discussed it, but uh, this should be done by all because defaults are not enough in most cases. Agreed. Your topic, query optimization. Yeah, this is probably my favorite. I actually look back and we've done two episodes on this one. So mm -hmm. the introduction to query optimization and we called it a 102 as well. So, yeah, obviously I liked your tip here. It's that query optimization will eventually be more important than config tuning. Yeah, config tuning is, is enough, like one per year. Uh, query optimization should be done every time you perform a lot of changes in application. So if you tend to have a couple of releases per day, you need a lot of optimization activities. Yeah, I've seen quite a few people end up throwing money at this problem instead. You know, instead of tuning a few queries, they scale up the database. And yeah. People think configuration tuning is something like silver bullet. No, you change infrastructure level quite infrequently. For example, you upgrade your VM or move to different infrastructure, upgrade your operational system. In this case, you need to consider Postgres settings. But usually you done it like 50-80 approach. You did good enough job. It's not worth spending time to fine tune it further and further. It won't pay off. But if you have very frequent releases, you have big instability in this area. Fortunately, usually it's not so wide as configuration tuning. Configuration tuning, usually it's like global. You changed work mem, default work mem, it will affect all queries. In uh, query tuning, usually it's very narrow. Okay, couple of tables, several queries working with those tables. So you can scale this process and involve more people into this process, especially if they all have independent clone databases. <laughs> yeah. I, I won't, uh, I won't uh, stop uh, saying this because it's obvious. You, everyone should have their own big size database. Yeah. And again, going back to previous tips, PGStat statements makes this a lot easier as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from top to bottom analysis. Yes, I agree. Okay. And last tip is about indexes. And I found it interesting that people don't realize that index health declines over time, even in modern Postgres, even with all deduplication optimization happened in Postgres 13 and 14. If you have Postgres 15, the latest major version 15, even with it over time, index health will decline because they receive a lot of updates. Not in all cases they can rebalance, right? They re receive some bloat still, 
It's much better with newer Postgres, much better than before. Postgres 12 is much worse than Postgres 15 in this area. But still you need to re-index re them occasionally, from time to time. You need to re-index them and you should just control bloat using some bloat estimate queries. They will produce mm -hmm. some numbers with some mistakes sometimes, like up to like, two, sometimes I saw 20, 30% is mistake. It says 50, but it has only 20% of bloat. It's okay. I mean, we can re-index them, but re-indexing is heavy operation and it requires, uh, it requires two things, uh, disk IO, and it also requires some brief locking and it can be blocked by autovacuum running in transaction ID wraparound prevention mode. Yeah, so true. yeah, you need retries, you need to be careful, and usually you need to put this additional work on some like weekend or nighttime, but uh, it should be automated. And I think already it's already obvious that we need some better tooling. And it's a shame that cloud providers don't provide additional tools to automate this work because almost everyone needs it. This is another popular tweet which got a lot of likes when I criticized cloud providers because yeah. progress went in the wrong direction, in my opinion, because they implemented backups, provisioning, uh, replication, auto-failover, and then jumped to very exotic topics like serverless. And, and they left us with all these needs alone, basically, like query analysis, index maintenance, some auto vacuum related work, bloat analysis, uh, repacking, and so on and so on. And monitoring in cloud providers uh, has very slow progress as well. You know, like down to earth topics, and yeah. not exotic ones. I, it's very great that we have a lot of progress on the frontier of exotic topics, but uh, we still need to close some gaps in administration. And I think yeah. this is one of them index maintenance. Also, unused indexes, redundant indexes, uh, invalid indexes. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I cannot stop here. <laughs> We've got a whole episode on this for anybody new to this topic. I'll link that up. Um, but yeah, I, I do want to give a shout out. The work on Postgres 13 on deduplication and I think on 14 on bottom-up deletion is mm -hmm. wonderful work and has massively reduced this problem, but it still exists. But it does mean if you're upgrading, like I've, I've seen quite a few people lately up doing upgrades from like 11 to 15 or 11 to 14. So those people, especially if you're upgrading in a way that preserves your bloat, definitely worth looking into re-indexing as part of your, well, after your upgrade, because you might get significant savings and speed ups. Okay, you mean re-index all indexes to be in better shape because this, uh, these optimizations will work only after you rebuild your index, right? Will the optimizations work only afterwards? I'm not sure, but basically... Some kinds of, some kinds of optimization definitely will work only after you, you create new index. So you need to rebuild it, yes. But yeah, the, the damage is already done, basically. So it's going back to the start and then it won't degrade as quickly in the new version. But you'll also get that initial boost. Right. But the main idea, you need to index a new way, yeah. you know, for newer Postgres. And I don't think this need will go away in the future because uh, looking at other uh, systems like SQL Server, for example, they also have this need. Okay, I didn't know that. Index great. maintenance, meaning we rebuild index sometimes. Of, of course, index maintenance also means we clean up unused indexes, redundant indexes, but uh, also we rebuild indexes which health is not so good, meaning bloat accumulated. Uh, this is normal. Nice. So these were your 10 mm. tips. I've actually got a bonus one uh, I wanted to add. 
I think not all beginners realize that the Postgres documentation and release notes will be as good as they are. And even the source code, the comments in the source code is really accessible to, even to beginners. So those things are your friends when you're trying to work out why something's happening or what the what the truth should be. So yeah, documentation, release notes, and source code comments are all brilliant. And the readme files in source code as well. That's, that's yeah, good in, in some directories we have readme files and mm -hmm. they are quite good at plain English, explaining things not explained in documentation sometimes. Yeah. Completely agree. Good. I also completely agree. I think it was good. I think it was helpful for some people. Please uh, share your opinion and don't forget to share this episode with colleagues you think might benefit from listening. And till next time. Thank you. Much appreciated. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.